You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast. Each podcast, we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to another week of the Weed Smart Podcast. I'm joined by Peter Newman, my co-host. How are you going, Pete? Yeah, great, Jess. I'm just sitting in my car in the town of Wongan Hills after a couple of days on the road doing the podcast with you. So what have you been up to on the road? You've been doing some workshops. Can you tell us a bit more? We have, yeah. So I work for Plan Farm and contract a lot of my time to Ari. And Plan Farm, we won a project to uh, do some harvest weed seed control stuff through GRDC, through the RCSN. And part of that project was to de- deliver four workshops on setting your header up for harvest weed seed control. And uh, we were blown away. We did four workshops in the last two and a half days. So uh, Northern, Wickerton, Cunderdon and today Wongan Hills and uh, over those four workshops we had 250 growers turn up so awesome. pretty, uh, pretty mind blowing yeah that's great news. and uh, yeah it was great and people really wanted to talk about all the different tools and it's obviously you know it works well when you've got the farmers fed in the idea to the RCSN and said we want these workshops and and when that happens obviously it was a workshop that was demanded and we got great turnouts yeah and were there some interesting discussion as well during the workshops. Yeah, really great discussion, Jess. It was really all, and we might have to do a podcast about it, I think, a lot of discussion about travelling through the harvester, so getting weeds in the front, then how do you get them out of the rotor, and then once you've got them out of the rotor, how do you get them into that chaff stream, and then once you've done that, what do you put on the back? Is it chaff line, chaff deck, HSD, chaff cart, all the different tools? So, yeah, it was really, yeah, really good discussion on all of those things. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we'll have to maybe chase some attendees down for some interviews later on and get get their thoughts. I think so. What about you, Jess? You took a trip to the wheat belt, is that right? Yes, we did. And I actually haven't been to Meriden before, so I got the opportunity to go to Meriden, visited Meriden Research Station up there. And yeah, it was really good because my granddad actually used to live in Meriden. That was one of the first places he lived when he moved over from ye old England. So it was oh, nice right. to be, yeah, what was he doing there? Working on the railways. So yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool to finally check it out. So yeah, you it was probably nice. knew my granddad. <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> yeah, he worked on the railways as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that, he wasn't there for too long. I can't remember the history altogether, but yeah, they were there for a couple of years, I think. Excellent. So we were talking about harvesting, the harvest workshops that you've been coordinating the last few days, and that's actually our first topic we're going to hear from Glenn Reithmuller who I chatted with at Meriden Research Station and he has a few tips on harvesting and making sure that those weed seeds are captured and he also talks a little bit about crop topping Pete. Yeah so Glenn actually came to our Cumberland workshop and we put him on the spot and he stood up in front of the crowd and really focused on that topic of how to get the weed seeds in the front of the harvester and also not just the weed seed but how to harvest low yielding crops because there are unfortunately a few of those around this year so yeah, Glenn is a legend of agriculture he's been I don't know how many years but lots of years as the ag engineer at, at Meriden uh, Ag Department and uh, yeah he's still doing the rounds it was great to see him. Oh that's good well if you didn't get the opportunity to be at one of those workshops let's hear from Glenn now and some of his tips. We're at the Meriden Research Centre. It's actually the first time I've been to Meriden myself, so it's pretty exciting. And I'm sitting here with the Development Officer, Glenn Reith-Muller. How are you going, Glenn? I'm fine, yep. 
So can you give us a little bit of an overview of Meriden Research Station? It's been around for a while, hasn't it? It's been here a fair while, right? It was certainly developed in the early 1900s to um, to test agriculture as far east as you'd possibly want to go in Western Australia, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, it's certainly spread a bit further since then. But but I'm only a latecomer. I've only been here since 82. Yeah, you've been here for over 30 years, right? It's <laughs> a long time. And so how did you end up? Did you grow up in this area? Uh, no, no. I'm from Toowoomba in Queensland. Oh, or, wow. Or Wairimo, really. It's a little little farm outside of uh, Toowoomba there but uh, yes no uh, I studied agriculture engineering in Toowoomba and then got the first job here in 82 after leaving the USA for two years so a uh, bit of a change from Oklahoma State University where it's really mm. nice soil over there compared to WA's uh, well I guess you call it soil but I suppose it's sand with a bit of a bit of organic matter. That's true um, yeah. <laughs> but we are developing ways to improve soils all the time. Yeah, so what are some of the trials that you're working on at the moment which might be relevant to um, growers? Um, well, we're doing a bit of uh, deep ripping research at the moment and looking at ways to um, uh, get organic matter or perhaps lime as well or any nutrients that's added to the surface down deep in the profile. Mm. So straight deep ripping sometimes works in some soils but sometimes it needs a little bit of a hand and some of the projects that uh, we have going at the moment with GRDC is showing that getting some of that um, organic matter down deep into the soil profile is, is, is beneficial to the crops, Yeah. but it also costs a lot of extra horsepower. So one of the things we're looking at is ways to reduce the, the power requirements to, to get that thing to work. Yeah, right. And so have you made any ground in that area Not yet? yet. Not yet? No. <laughs> we're actually here with a group of students and a couple of staff members from ARI. And before we left, Mike Ashworth mentioned that you had some tips on harvesting low. Would you be able to share those with everyone? Uh, yep. Unfortunately, this year we have another a dry season in some of our northern eastern areas. We've done some work in the past looking at ways of getting material into the front of the header, which is the biggest problem with short crops is uh, just getting it to feed. So most of our modern headers now have a tine reel on them, mm. which aren't really the best for getting material in. I think the old stripper days was probably a better a comb finger system, for, yeah. and you could see why the Australians developed that. But to improve the, the existing reel, we've just done a, some simple things like adding some uh, black plastic or its core flute bit like plastic cardboard yeah right uh, and it's got to be black so it doesn't reflect in your eyes at night time yep. just one piece of that per real turn tends to just sweep the material that's cut short and sits mm. on the knife and just flicks it back into the cool. into the, uh, the the comb or on our case here we had a belt front here yeah it just helps the feeding but one thing we did learn though is you don't put it evenly along space one after the other because it, if you have it as a like an auger effect your eye follows this auger and you, your eye goes backwards and forwards and it's not too long and you have a headache. Yeah, right. So That's best interesting. <laughs> so it's best to have them staggered. And also, some farmers have commented, it's best to have them staggered as well so that you don't get a lump feeding along into the front. Yep. You, the idea with, with a short crop and a very low flow, you want it to keep it even and low, not, not have a lump. So having these pieces that sweep it in you want it to not sweep one onto the next, onto the next, yeah. onto the next, and you end up with a lump. So having them staggered around the reel helps that as well, as well as not giving you a headache. Yes. And are they pretty easy to fit? Very easy to fit, yep. Just punch some holes and zip ties. You know, yeah, uh, right. Very quick. Yeah, cool. That's a good tip. And what about any, do you have any other tips now going, we're sort of not too far away from harvest in terms of weed control from the trials that you've done in recent years? One thing I think that might be worth looking at for those that might have some ryegrass that's kinked over and when you're trying to get it into the header for, you know, either chaff lining or, or, or HSDs or whatever, 
would be to perhaps try these little lentil lifters. We've they're made in WA and they're mainly sold in the eastern states, but I, we used them for some cirrodella harvesting here last year on a farm and. They work pretty well because being only short, they were and stiff enough that you could uh, actually bend them to suit the the header front because the header fronts generally have a bit of a sad face on them. They're generally lower at the ends than they are in the centre, yeah. and so you can adjust, just bend them so that they're evenly, you know, touching the ground surface, and uh, it just fed this cirrodella in nicely. So I think perhaps something like that. And I've used uh, little lifters, homemade lifters that my dad made years ago. For getting in ryegrass in my long-term trial here as well. Yeah, right. And so, is that something that farmers haven't you haven't noticed them doing in recent years, and not really considering using lifters? No, I think when you mention lifters, farmers often cringe because generally you're going to hit something, yeah. break something, or it'll go through the header or whatever. But these being short enough and small enough, I think they they probably would be okay. And if they get occasionally bent, well, you've got to have to straighten them again. Yes. One of the worst things about feeding a header unevenly is that the wind on the sieves then could blow some of your ryegrass out when, right. you, when you get a, a low flow. So it's very tricky to set the wind on the on the sieves so that you get an even flow to keep your, your ryegrass where you want it. And if you back the wind off, well, then you get a dirtier sample, but you also get your ryegrass off as well. Mm. So it just depends on uh, yeah, adjusting the, the wind on the sieves to to keep your, your weed seeds where you want them is probably the trickiest thing. And so I suspect that's why we want a nice even low flow, not a not a lumpy flow into the header. Yes, certainly. So you can set the wind easier. Otherwise, it's not easy. And some of the, some of the patches this year is not going to be easy because you get a good patch and then a thin patch. Yes. And you can adjust your height of the comb easy, but it's a bit trickier to adjust the wind speed. Some, some herders you can adjust the wind speed fairly quickly, but others you set it uh, and it takes a while to adjust. Right. And by then you're through the patch and it's too late. So I think the smarter headers in the future will have automatic adjusting. They'll actually sense the flow or sense yeah, the amount fun. of... I think there's one already on the market in Europe that senses the, the torque on the drum. It knows how much feed is coming in yeah, and then right. adjusts very everything cool. else according to. So awesome. that could be interesting for the future. Yeah, that's a very handy tip. And what about the season that you've had in Meriden? Is there any tips you'd give specifically to this kind of region from what they've experienced over the growing stage? Um, the only other thing is really the knife itself... If the knife is not cutting like a pair of scissors, it doesn't help when you've got really short crops. We found that a normal knife, if it's a bit blunt, will actually cut off a, a normal crop okay because the bulk of the weight of the head and the stem is above it, so it hits it low and the, the weight hinges it back onto the table or onto the belt. When you're cutting very close to the head, if it doesn't cut it cleanly, it tends to tear it off and that propels it forward mm. onto the ground. Yeah. So by having the knife adjusted so it's actually cutting on the bottom of the ledger guard like it should do on the knife guard and a nice uh, sharp knife I like to run my finger along it if it prickles my finger that's good if I can slide my finger along it doesn't catch Mm. the section needs replacing because you need it to cut nice and clean and then the head will will fall either straight there or at least coming back into the header but if it's torn off it'll tend to propel it forwards and we don't want heads on the ground even when a low Low harvesting year, you don't want to be leaving more on the ground. No. We have less sheep now to pick those up as well. So Very true. You know, some yeah. don't have any sheep at all, so we want to get them all in. Yes, certainly. Glenn, you mentioned that you've done some work on uh, canola desiccation. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the trials and the findings that you've got out of that? Yeah, sure. Now, it was a few years ago, we, uh, we started looking at swathing 
and spraying on a swather to take the weeds out underneath the swath as well as to the side. Yeah. And at the time we started the work, there was no registered products to do that, even though we knew there was farmers using products that mm. did, did work, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, we needed to... Along the uh, grapevine. Yes, yeah. right. So we had to make sure that for a start works, and if it does work, what products are... Uh, possibly good ones to go with and so now at least we do have uh, glyphosate registered for uh, for that there's a couple of products that it can be used on swathers and over the top of of canola as well but timing is the critical thing there and I've always had a a bit of an issue about the timing of spraying of that because when I did my work it was mainly down Mount Barker and Catanning in the Mm. higher rainfall areas and I noticed there a lot of them a lot of the, um, the yield was from the branches of the the crop and on the labels of some of these uh, chemicals, they all talked about using the, the main stem as the, the guide for the colour change. Right. And that never sat well with me because it was always, most of the crop was in these branches. So I did a random check, shut my eyes, walked around and grabbed pods, random heights, opened them up and then looked at that and then went with, say, in the case of glyphosate, at least 20% colour change. So the black seeds versus green seeds in the mm. pods. And, but I notice the label is still the other way. So, uh, but I think some work in the eastern states now has confirmed what I've been finding myself that uh, it's not good to, to spray when most of the crop's too green. Yes, there's definitely the, the products that you can be used, and that, and it's definitely works on the ryegrass. We found with the the swathing, or with straight over the top, it really did a really good job on ryegrass. And the, one of the best things was say on fleabane down there too. Oh, there was right. absolutely nothing left. The fleabane growing underneath the canopy was virtually like growing in a glass house. Yeah, when you take right. the top off, it goes away. Yeah. Or you know, takes off. But when you spray it at the same time as swathing it, there was yeah, it just smoked all these fleabane plants oh, nicely. Interesting. Mm, yeah, so right. uh, there was nothing left and all the chemicals we tried, you know, um, even lower rates, they all just killed these fleabanes easy. Whereas normally when they're they're a bit older and tougher. The flea bane is hard to kill. Mm. Oh, and the only other thing to mention there is make sure you do use registered products. We do definitely don't want people using products that uh, could end up as a residual in the grain. Yes, definitely. You could end, you could end up buying a shipload otherwise. That's correct, yes. So, yes, stick with the label. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> note to end on, Glenn. Thanks <laughs> okay. very much. No worries. Thank you. Thanks very much to Glenn Reithmuller there. And Pete, lifters, they haven't been very popular with some farmers. What's your take on them? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we used to try and harvest over the top of the weeds, Jess, because we didn't want them. And and now we're talking about using harvest weed seed control, putting the, the header front on the deck and harvesting as low as we can and getting as many weeds in the front as we can. So different thinking these days and particularly in low yielding crops where the weeds want to fall over uh, perhaps we need to do something crazy like put crop lifters in to get weeds in the front so yeah it's it's actually an area that hasn't been researched much and I think we really need to, to follow up on it. Yeah definitely and it sounds like it's not all doom and gloom from some of Glenn's tips there some of the fixes for putting lifters on seem to be not too difficult so it's definitely worthwhile considering I think. Yeah you had a bucket full of lifters and some great little plastic ones that just clip on that are very simple to put on and so yeah the tools are out there I think we need to go and measure them and see if it does actually give us that improvement in harvest weed seed control. Now Pete obviously resistance testing it's something we've actually been talking about trying to encourage people out there to go ahead and 
do it and, and we've been trying to spruik some of the valuable reasons for doing so and just talking about it over the last few weeks as a team and how we can encourage people to get out there and do the resistance testing. We actually up next are going to be hearing from Darren Morell. He's based in Meckering and he has a farm that he's leasing over a long term period of time and unfortunately he's found out that he's got trifluralin resistance in this leased property and so he is right on the message with resistance testing is a valuable thing. He's just received some results from Peter Butsalis and unfortunately has 80% trifluralin resistance, Pete. So he's going to be talking to us about some of the approaches he's going to take to try and really drive that weed seed bank down, Pete. But it's a big issue, isn't it? And people should really get on the, on the train of getting resistance and susceptibility testing done, isn't that right? Absolutely. So it's that time of year, obviously, when you can go and do the resistance testing. And in a year like this, we've had in WA, we've had very dry conditions and in some places very wet conditions. And you can blame the conditions for the herbicide failure. But uh, Darren has obviously thought, well, I'm going to get it tested to just see if it is conditions or if it is actually resistance. And when you find something like that, trifluralin resistance has actually been very rare in Western Australia. And that's going to be a game changer for him. He's going to have to change a lot of management. Uh, because trifluralin would have been something he would have otherwise relied on. So, yeah, when you find out something like that uh, and find a big problem, uh, that will lead to a lot of practice change for him and, and that ultimately that's when resistance testing is, uh, is the most useful. That's right. All right, well, let's take a listen to Darren Morell. He's going to tell us his story and what he plans to do to attack those weed seeds. I'm speaking with Darren Morell. He's based in Meckering and he's uh, got a long-term farm lease on a property out there, which unfortunately has turned up with trifluralin resistance. But first of all, Darren, how are you going? Good, thanks. Yourself? I'm good. Now, we had the RE crew go out and visit you the other day in Meckering and Ginny Chen, she actually collected some more samples to have a look at this trifluralin resistance in your uh, farm property that you've got there. But first of all, can you just tell us how you got in touch with uh, RE researcher Ginny Chen? Yeah, sure, Jess. I saw a tweet on Twitter from RE saying they had a PA student doing a, a investigations or research into land resistance and we only just recently received the result of the high resistance level that we had there of Trefland so I gave Ari a call. Yeah and she's going to look into it for you a bit further and hopefully um, there can be some uh, more information for you there but how did you go about finding out about your resistance issue? Did you send away a test? What was the process? Yes no we collected weed seeds uh, just pre-harvest uh, last year and uh, collected those seeds and sent them away to Peter Butsalis' plants consulting service and yeah, got him to do a herbicide resistance test for us. And what results did you end up getting back, the specific results? Came back with 80% resistance to Trefland. So what does that mean for you now in managing that property? We've got a few challenges. So, yeah, we've, we've got to try and uh, find other uh, other chemical groups that we can use to target ryegrass. And, yeah, it, it's uh, using every tool in the toolbox. So we'll, we'll be looking at rotations and any non-chemical uh, tools that we can use and harvest weed seed management uh, alongside the rotations. And you've got barley in there at the moment. What's your plan for the rotations over the next few years? Probably next year, we'll, we'll, now that we know that result, we'll probably go into a uh, Roundup Ready uh, canola next year. And yeah, after that, we're 
possible considerations is uh, is hay, and also looking at barley and, and swathing barley is an option that we're investigating now. Yeah, right. And what's your plan for this harvest? We saw in the field the other day there was quite a bit of ryegrass. Are you still going to be able to harvest that and what's your plan? Uh, no, we will harvest it as it's treated as a normal commercial crop, so we will uh, harvest the barley. And it doesn't look like this year we can do the crop topping uh, window. There's too much differential between the timing of the barley and the timing of the ryegrass, so unfortunately that tool for us this year is unavailable. So we will probably cut high. There's a lot of rocks in the paddock, so we don't think we can cut low and, and cut, so we'll probably cut high and, and try and get a hot burn in autumn next year. You've gone ahead and done this test. We know that sometimes there's a bit of hesitation in getting these resistance tests done. What would you say to people who are unsure about the value of getting them done? I think we've got to start putting it in our mindset that it's we treat it similar to uh, soil testing. Soil testing is an annual program we do in the budget every year and we use that data for making fertiliser decisions. I, I think we need to start doing more resistance testing to help us make our plan, our chemical decisions. We, we need to know, get a better handle on where, uh, what chemicals work for us and which ones don't because there's, there's no point spraying chemicals that don't work. So I just think it aids your decision making on, on how you uh, handle your, your chemicals in your paddocks. Why do you reckon there is some hesitation there for some people? I still think it's probably an education process. I think we're still learning about it. It hasn't been around as long as what um, soil testing has been. So I think over time, take-up will increase. I do think the, the timeliness of it is, is a challenge in terms of from the time you collect the seeds to the time you get the result is, is a long time. And... It's a lot of the times it comes too late for the following season. It's a lot, sometimes the results come you know, halfway through seeding and you've yeah. already done the paddock. So, mm. yeah, that, that, that poses a challenge. But, yeah, I still think that data is still worthwhile for the following year anyway. So uh, I think that's, you know, I think over time, I think con getting the consultants on board and trying to get all the agros to get their clients to, to encourage you know, farmers to do more resistance testing will aid this system. It sounds like you've got a good plan going forward. Can you give us a little bit more detail about what you'll be doing? On that particular paddock? Yes. Next year we'll go to Roundup Ready Canola and we will either swath the canola with a spray line or we will desiccate with a crop topping to get another shot of the weeds at the end. We'll also use promimazide up front as another tool on the ryegrass and then obviously your two shots of Roundup in season. And then we will, the following year, we will consider uh, hay and possibly two years of hay to try and get 100% control of the ryegrass in those years. Alternatively, we may look at, we're considering is uh, growing barley after the Roundup Ready canola and swathing it and also using prosulfocarb um, post-emergent um, with moisture and, and 10 mils of rain coming, we will look at sort of three litres, two and a half to three litres of prosulfocarb on top as well. And we'll also, if the crop topping with glyphosate will grow a feed variety, and if the crop topping of with glyphosate of the barley is an option, if the window's there, we'll, we will use that as well. Great. Well, it's always good to hear from uh, different farmers on their approach to these kind of issues, and good luck with it all. Sounds like you've got a good plan of attack. No worries. Thanks, Jess.
thanks to Darren Morell there for giving us an insight into the issues he's having with trifluralin resistance and what he plans on doing in terms of his rotations and herbicide program and other tactics he's planning on using to really tackle the problem. And Pete, for those people who are now inspired, hopefully, to go out there and get some resistance or susceptibility testing done, there's a couple of options people have, isn't there? Yeah, so there's two main resistance testing services in Australia. There's Peter Butsalis at Plant Science in uh, South Australia. So I think if you just Google plantscience.com, you'll find Peter. And there's also John Broster at CSU, Charles Sturt University at Wagga. They offer a resistance testing service. Both great services. They're the two main services available for us in Australia. Yeah, good to hear, Pete. And is there any other tips or any other messages you'd like to get out there at this time of year with harvest coming up just around the corner? I guess with that resistance testing aspect, part of it is often just about having the bag in the header so that when you get to that paddock you can easily hop out and get a sample whereas if you sort of just don't have the tools and you don't plan for it, sometimes harvest finishes and you think, oh I didn't actually do that testing I thought I was going to do. So yeah, just a little bit of planning uh, ahead of harvest, making a bit of a note for the two or three paddocks that you might test where you've seen something dodgy this year and, yeah, find out whether it was conditions or resistance. Yeah, for sure. That's a really great tip because, yeah, if it's there, it makes it a lot easier to just grab the bag and do it. So you may even do it this afternoon if you've got the opportunity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Instant adoption from the Weed Smart podcast. Yes. All right, Pete. Well, that just about wraps it up. Thanks very much for being my co-host today. Thanks, Jess. I'll jump in the car and drive home to Geraldton after a couple of great days on the road. Yes, safe travels. See you next time, Pete. Thanks, Jess. Bye.